Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Why Would You Tell Me That? A question I often pose to the man sitting opposite me at his desk in his wonderful giant mansion in Leeds, Dublin. <laughs> I say to him, why have you told me that? Why? I didn't need to know that. But frankly, you do need to know things. That's why we're here. We're here to learn. We're here to expand our minds. We're here to hear stories that we don't know, but probably should. Uh, so, Neil, I'll tell everybody where they can find us. You can uh, get us on Instagram. He is at Neil Delmer Comedy. I'm at Dave Today FM, and the show is at Why Would You Tell Me That? And we tell you that each week because we would like you to get involved with us. So, you know, you can go and offer us online abuse for supporting whatever football clubs we support, if you like. Or you can suggest things we could do for the podcast because we look for, you know, between 10 and 15 episodes a season. There's a lot of work in there, and your suggestions have been brilliant. God, you're, I was just thinking during that whole monologue, you're very smooth. It's almost like you're on the radio every day. It's just, Almost. Oh, I mean, there was no ums and ahs. I was very impressed. And the reason I didn't say anything is because I was looking for a picture, which I will send on to you in the course of our discussions Ooh. this evening. All right, because it's got something. It's It's part of the episode. It is part of the episode, yes. Fantastic. Well, look, we should say we're proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network, and Neil is now going to tell us why we're going to be wowed, amazed, and frankly, aghast at whatever he's going to oh, bring us in part two. I would, I would say appalled as well. Oh, um, we're wow. chatting to We're chatting to Dara Ennis um, in the second part of the show. Dang it, Dara Ennis, the, the guy on the TV show. Yes, uh, the menace Ennis from The Chase, uh, because the chase. not only is he a brilliant television quizzer, he also has a proper job as well. He is a neuroscientist a in get off. Oxford. Yes. Talk about brains. Brains to burn. Serious brains and a very good Gaelic footballer as well. Um, he's going to tell us about the animal, the study of which has led to more Nobel Prizes than any other animal. Oh, that's very cool. Now I'm, do you like course, that? My brain is racing to think what animal it is. What do you think? Um... It... Is it the smartest animal? Is it like an ape of some description? Or a... Oh, a dolphin. Yes, it's a dolphin. It's Flipper. Flipper oh, brilliant. actually. The he reason... won the Nobel Prize, did he? Yeah, well, the reason Flipper actually uh, stopped making the TV series is because his research work it took oh. up too much of his time. Yeah, he started getting funding and then it was all, it was too difficult to do yeah, both. Yeah, it's also the reason Fungi's gone missing. He's actually doing a doctorate. And, <laughs> uh... Well, you know, you know what they say in dolphin circles? 
No, we're not talking about uh, dolphins. We are talking about something that breeds quicker than dolphins, so we okay. we can study them quite quickly. But I'll let, I'll let Dara tell you who it is. Okay, do that. So because we're talking about his work, right? And um, I'll give you a clue. It's in the insects world, right? Okay. Let me give you a, a bug fact to start with, right? <laughs> God. Like, you couldn't really start an episode. But, uh, the only thing you could impress me more with by starting an episode with, with, like, saying, let me give you a bug fact would be, either let me give you a guitar or sneakers fact that you don't know, Dave. But the next in line is let me give you a bug fact. Because okay. bugs are ridiculously brilliant. I have an insect one for you, and I also have an accompanying picture that I'm going to send to oh, you. this is one you're sending me, okay. Momentarily, right? Right, 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 right. So you're knocking around East Africa, right? Or Malaysia. And you might look down, and you see this little insect, and it's called an, uh, an assassin bug. Okay. Straight away, we like this. What yeah. a name, right? What a great it, name. It's called Acanthus Peace Petax, right? <laughs> now, this lad is what David Attenborough would describe as one bad bastard of York. <laughs> this lad. <laughs> and I quote. Is a forbidden whore. That is what right. my father would call him. So like many other assassin bugs, it hunts its prey by doing this usual thing. Pierces it with the uh, proboscis, injects paralysis-inducing saliva, and an enzyme that dissolves tissue, right? So basically turns you into soup and then sucks out your innards. Wow. Right? I mean, these creatures are living on a level we're not allowed to live on. No, I mean, for very good reason. <laughs> I mean, if somebody cuts you off when you're driving into town and you just fired a straw into them and then sucked them out like a milkshake. If I had a proboscis, there'd be a lot of ro- unexplained road deaths. I'll tell you that much. It's the one place I get ratty. Actually, not on the roads, just in car parks. People who pull up to car park exit barriers and put on their flashers and open the car door together, they would immediately be greeted with giant proboscis <laughs> from BMW behind them, straight into their jugular. Oh, what's happening? I'm turning into soup. And then they'd be gone, and I'd just have to get the lads to move the car. Oh, I my, thought my milkshake brought all the boys to the yard, and now I am a milkshake, and now I'm being sucked up by Dave Moore. Who's <laughs> and my car is being brought to the yard because I can no longer drive it. Do you know my? Have I told you my what I would bring on Dragon's Den? Which was this is my theory because we're talking about car parks. Yeah, I'm getting well aid. I'll get back to it. I wanted to put lip balm on car park tickets <laughs> because when you drive into a car park, mm. you press the little buzzer, and the little thing comes out. Yeah. What, and what do you do with the ticket? You put it in your mouth. You put it in your gob, don't you? Yeah. And if that had a little cherry thing on it. Although I mean, I've been in a couple of car parks where they say, yeah. please refrain from putting tickets in your mouth. Really? Why? Now, I don't know. Was this maybe was a COVID thing? But like there's one, the one I park in all the time when I go to the movie premieres, the um, Smithfield. And you drive in there, you drive down, and as you drive down underground, you get to the bottom thing, and it says, please do not put tickets in your mouth. Has that somebody died from tickets in their mouth? I mean... Do you know the Greeks used to put coins in your eyes? Is that the, the, That's the next one. Just... <laughs> A cue park right across your <laughs> Tickets gob. in your mouth. What does it mean? Oh, it means that um, <laughs> he can get across the River Styx into Hades, but it does shut at midnight. And... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the main thing And also please do not park in residence spaces Yes yes the ferryman has actually forgotten Where he's left his boat That's what it is <laughs> And he's walking around the river sticks With his little beeper Seeing which hazards go off On what random gondola <laughs> He has to bring a soul across <laughs> into Hades <laughs> Yes But I've gotten distracted You have um, I apologize That's my fault Yes yeah, so, so proboscis That's where we were You yeah. would kill people 
I think we both know I would. Right. That's not that weird because a lot it's of other not. bugs do that. Okay. It gets weirder. So it sucked the innards out. It has an exoskeleton, say, of an ant. Mm. It then carries its victims around with it like in some sort of serial killer trophy bearer. And the insect can carry as many as 20 dead ants at a time. What? I am sending in you the a picture. Of Silence of the Lambs. Bullshit is this. Like, look, look at your phone. Okay, hang on. Ah, f- no. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. It is. How do I describe this Jesus. to people? Jesus. Do you know the be- in in Beverly Hillbillies? Do you know when the Clampets are lugging all their possessions? When I'm sorry, what Beverly age Hills? are you? Like, what? Why is your cultural reference a black and white cartoon from the '60s? Or it wasn't even a cartoon; it was a black it and white. It was a cartoon. Yeah, but hang on. Why is that your cultural reference for this? Because it is the most accurate, and also it was repeated in the '90s. I didn't see it when it was first time round. And don't pretend you're older than me, so fuck right <laughs> off. <laughs> but you're the one making references to '60s TV shows. Excuse me. Any chance I get to throw a jalopy in there, I'm going to throw <laughs> it in there. If if there's a dust bowl John Steinbeck novel reference, I'm going to throw it in. It looks like okay. Oh. It looks like when you drive down the motorway and there's a fella who's of ill repute trying to carry forty-seven mattresses on top of his van. That's what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I I will go as I'll go as far up maybe as the late eighties, early nineties. In what was Catch the Pigeon, Dastardly and Muttley, the yeah, that, yeah. That, that thing, Penelope Pitstop. Help! Yeah. There was there was the little th- were they were they the. They weren't the Keystone Cops, were they? But there was a, there was a, there was loads of them. They were small, and they got into an old-fashioned like nineteen thirties cop van, whatever. And then it was just small on the bottom, but then it was massive on the top. So like it just grew out of the chassis, and then it was just like this big round mound of a car with loads of heads sticking out of it. Yeah, that's what it looks like to me. Or do you remember on well we do Guinness Book of Records and and that 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 record breaker show where it, you'd always have like forty seven lads on a motorbike yeah. that's usually a pyramid yeah. but this yeah. is what this looks like oh my it's basically God. a bug with up to twenty dead ants at a time and I should explain this yeah right? I'm thinking why right I'm thinking a couple of things based on the knowledge we've amassed over the time we've been doing this podcast. Okay. So, like the first things first is I, I would lean into the serial killer thing. I would think this is a like a a threat to maybe other assassin bugs. Going, I'm harder than you. <laughs> I've got a shinier tracksuit. My tash is skinnier. <laughs> you know, like so, something along those lines. But then I'm thinking, like, is it just more innocent than this? Is it just like does he feel bad? <laughs> What? Do you know what I mean? Does he go? <laughs> He's not going to give them all honorable burials. Yeah, what he does is he sucks the innards out of you, but then, as like in a war film, he he just he holds your head Cradles as you pass you. out. Yeah. And he goes, "Shh, what is your last wish?" I'll tell. Go, I'll, I'll tell your mommy you was fighting brave. I'll tell your mommy you was fighting brave, Jimmy. And then <laughs> bury me, and it's just yeah, he's he you know you know what you, you say to me. The cart in, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. Yeah, he 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 just <laughs> he gives all of these honorable burials. That's what he does. <laughs> no, it is not innocent. It is not a threat. Okay, I do like that idea that the more that you have, the more is threatening. And like his cousin has twenty exoskeletons and sovereign rings on each yeah. of his six legs. <laughs> yeah, and a and a tat 
with love and hate in between his various yeah, legs. Yeah. Um, it gets it gets a little bit weirder than this because if you look at those, I mean, they're not like monks building dry stone beehive huts. Like you, no, you don't want this not. to be unstable, right? Yeah. Nobody wants dead ant Jenga, so it binds them together with a, an excretion into a cluster that is clearly larger than its own body in the picture I've sent you. Bind excretion cluster. These are words. This is bringing me back to the frog spawn episode with Simon Watton series one. Like. I don't need... The, why would you tell me this? I don't need to know excretion bind cluster of dead, empty exo, exoskeletons of ants. I, I don't need this information. You don't need this information, but you're still curious as to why to do it, I right? I really am. I really okay. am. <laughs> so in 2007, uh, there was a lot of researchers from uh, New Zealand, a team of them. <laughs> in and... 2007, the assassin bug finally broke his silence and he told, <laughs> he told the lads... He said, okay, fine. I've held off for too long. <laughs> There's a picture on New Zealand television. And it's just a blacked out ant. And Paul McLoon from last year, year's yeah, episode, yeah, who yeah. used to do the voice of the IRA and Sinn Féin, does the voice of this one particular assassin book. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, sorry. I'll stop interrupting you now. Go on. No, 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 no. Finally, inter- in 2007. No, like, we should say that this entire species of it does it. It's not one. You've made it sound like it's one fella. <laughs> yeah, You've made it sound yeah. like it's it's an ant with a problem. It's one, and It's one it's, ne'er-do-well. It's Dexter, and he, he does live by a code. So that's the only thing is that the, <laughs> this assassin guy will only kill ants that have killed other things. Of course, of course. No. So what it is is... Uh, this is what they reckon it is anyway. So a team of researchers, 2007, they wanted to test whether it helped them protect themselves against predation. So oh. in this study, they left a load of assassin bunks alone in glass cages with several species of jumping spiders, which like to eat these assassin gotcha, gotcha. bugs. They're the natural predator of them, right? So some of these insects were carrying balls of ant carcasses on their back. The sentences you never thought you'd say on this podcast. <laughs> and they call these masked bugs, right? And then the okay. other ones were left in the nip. nip. Unmasked. A- Alamode. Unmasked. Oh, okay. By the way, write this down. The masked ant killer. It's a Joel Dammit vehicle for ITV inside. Right? <laughs> mass singer, mass dancer. Let's go one extra. And these jumping spiders have brilliant vision, but their sense of smell isn't great. So they hunt by just seeing something and then yeah. they just pounce. Boom. Right. The result was they attacked the naked bugs 10 times more roughly than wow. the masked ones. And they even tried this with dead preserved assassin bugs to control for the effects of movement and behavior. Mm-hmm. And the results remain the same. So carrying a ball of dead ants, it turns out, is a great strategy for an assassin bug. Okay, so what it does is then, it does it confuse them or does it, like, I wonder yeah. why it, they're confused. Yeah, so just, that, that doesn't match the shape of an assassin bug that exactly. I like to eat. You're a spider, you're looking at looking out for assassin bugs, and you see this thing and you think, What the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. What's that, Terry? I'll tell you what that is. Have you seen the, the Beverly Hills? Yeah, listen, <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies. I have seen it. I mean, it's a seminal work that is repeated often in the Oh, 60s, it's a proper 70s, cultural 80s, reference. Yeah, it yeah. is a cultural reference. I think, in many ways, Terry, it'll stand the test of time. I think you're dead right, Dermot. I definitely think you're right on that. <laughs> um, so they don't know. I suppose the, the prey profile of them is entirely changed. They also apparently don't like to attack ants. 
Ooh, specifically okay. the spiders because ants can tend to go swarm. being attacked and swarm and send out a chemical signal right right right, um, right right and either way 10 times that's insane like because this is terrifying and yeah appalling as you said and something you don't want to think about but what a strategy yeah, like, I mean, okay, if you were, I don't know if you've ever gone on a self-offense course or anything like that, but like... Self-offense! So Self-defense! <laughs> no, self-offense is amazing! Yeah. So what you want to do is you want to get into the room and immediately crack the biggest guy over the skull and go, Now I am the alpha! Self-offense! With the two glasses! Come at me! I would have thought self-offense was trying to offend yourself. It's <laughs> just, just good. What sort of a fucking prick are you? I, <laughs> can you offend yourself? I don't know. Now you're getting into existential questions. True. Um, but if, Sorry, self-defense course. No, I haven't ever done one. But if somebody said to you, okay, what's going to make you 10 times less likely to be attacked is... <laughs> Strapping a load of scoby skeletons to your back, still in their tracksuits. Do you know what? It would probably work. Because if you went strolling down the wrong part of town with 10, like... Ten hated foes, yeah, wrapped around you. Be like, lads are going. Like, I don't care what's going on. I'm not. I'm not getting involved with him. Yeah, like if you had skulls tied to your belt. <laughs> well, you don't wear belts. Tied to, to those two things that make a hoodie slightly tighter. <laughs> which is how you dress. A I mean, drawstring, Neil. Drawstring are the words I'm looking for. I think people would leave you alone. Yeah. I just think we were having a go at this aunt. Cucullin did it and we all thought he was hard as nails and this ant we uh, is fundamentally misunderstood. But yeah. that, that's my bug fact for you. I thought I love like it. That. I absolutely love that. I'm gonna top it now because this is possibly my favourite stat that we've had on the show so far. That's a big claim. A I big just think claim. it's really eye opening. In Hit Japan. Me. Yeah. Ninety-eight percent of adoptions are actually adult men between the ages of twenty and thirty years of age. Okay, I'm gonna start at the beginning. <laughs> In Japan, ninety-eight <laughs> percent of adoptions. So ninety. So all, I'm gonna even say ninety-eight percent. All because it's it's practically all. Yeah. All adoptions, pretty much, are not by men in their twenties oh. and thirties. They are of men. Yes. In their 20s and 30s. Not children. So, let's go back to the beginning. This is how I came across this. I was watching House MD the other day. Mm -hmm. As you know, I've been watching it for ages. because there's a Million episodes. Yeah. There's a character who wants to leave his business to the next generation. And he mentions this particular company that does exist in real life. And I went off and I looked it up. So, let me ask you, a few years ago, not long ago in the grand scheme of things, if I said to you, how old is the oldest company in the world? What year was it founded? What would you say? Jesus. Uh, sorry. Still existing, obviously. Not not began and has since closed. Began and uh, still exists. I'm losing it totally. Okay, because I, I would jump into some kind of... I don't know why I jump into printing press and all that kind of era. Okay. Like 1500s and kind of go... Like unless the church is a company. Is it? Is the church registered for tax? Uh, no, I think that's pretty much the opposite reason you set up a church, isn't it? Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, in that case, then I would say, yeah, I'll go for I'll go for Gutenberg's company, whatever he set up in fifteen seventy six. Ah, Police Academy Limited. <laughs> I'll see your Beverly Hills hillbillies <laughs> reference hey, man, and raise you. Steve Gutenberg reference. Bob Bobcat Goldthwait. 
That was the name of the actor who did that. Hey man, we can't move on. Talk like I was hope I was hoping you wouldn't you wouldn't say who it was. I was hoping you would make no further reference to the noises you just made. <laughs> and our going. younger listeners would go, What the fuck is wrong with them? What happened, Dave? He's having his insides uh smooth the fight. Fucked out. Five seventy eight AD. Whoa. Okay. Yes. Okay. When William the Conqueror was invading England, these lads were beginning to think, well, we've got the 500th birthday coming up, lads. We better book the venue. Jesus. Uh, they are called uh, Congo Gumi. Uh, it's in Japan, and they build Buddhist temples. Wow. So on, on current time, 1,500 years right. of so building th- Buddhist temples. Yeah. So to be, in a, to be exact, it was founded in 578 to build the, the temple uh, Shiteno-ji, which is a massive national project. They were invited in by the, by the prince to do this. And um, they have pivoted over the years. In World War II, they made coffins. Okay. As you would. Yeah. But largely speaking, Buddhist temples, expert carpenters, 40 generations. And as I said to you, if I asked you this a couple of years ago, they did this from 578 to 2006. Jesus. And in 2006, they their borrowings, their debt became quite large. It was about $350-odd million. And they were acquired by uh, Takamatsu, which is a large construction company. So they are, they are a subsidiary of that now. Okay, so they right. still exist today, just not independently. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, now okay. it's it's unbelievable when you think about what they what they do. Fuck, that's like that is ridiculous that they've been doing effectively. Okay, slight pivots throughout history. Yeah. yeah. But effectively, they've been woodworkers and manufacturers, master and construction master carpenters. Yeah. For fifteen hundred years. Yeah. Do you know when you go into a a, a business and they have the the people on the wall of who are the past chairman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's possibly the reason Japan had to invade China. They needed to use the Great Wall for the pictures of the 40-odd generations of people who looked after this company. And so what has this got to to do with adoptions? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a family business. So these guys decided that we don't always leave the company to the eldest son. Because okay. what if happens if he's not great at managing mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. So there's documents from like the 1600s, and they show that a company would decide not necessarily to put the eldest son at the helm if he didn't have what it took to be a good leader. So right. they, they could give it to the middle son or, the, or the, the next son or the youngest son or whatever. If the family had no male heir, they would get the daughter to take a husband, and he could be the head carpenter. The head he could, the, he right, could okay. be the head of the whole thing. And he would change his name to her name, Gotcha. And a lot of the time, he would be adopted. Into the family, uh, so not just through marriage. Yeah, yeah. So nowadays, legal adoptions of this kind paired up with an arranged marriage, meaning the adopted son also becomes a son and a son-in-law at the same time. Right, right, is right. Quite, is quite common. And some of the most famous companies in Japan have family-run businesses because of this. Car, the, the car maker, Toyota. Uh, Suzuki is one of the most famous ones. Suzuki is famously run by an adopted son. He's the current chairman and CEO, Osama Suzuki, and he's the fourth consecutively adopted son to run the group. So 98% of adoptions are by are, are of men between 20 and 30, and a lot of it is to do with businesses. Well, well a lot of it or all, all of it. I mean, like Pretty much all of it, yeah, yeah. is to do with businesses, yeah. And, and obviously, there's so much of this practice mm. that 
is it culturally I'm trying to basically see and maybe you don't have the answer to this but like is the fact that only 2% then presumably are of children yeah is standard that be, kind yeah, of that, exactly yeah. standard but is that a cultural thing and that adoption isn't a thing in Japan or is it just that it's so widespread to adopt somebody to make your business better that that just dwarfs the numbers of regular normal adoptions I suppose you'd have to think that they're just entirely different processes aren't they one is for a very specific reason and um, marries somebody's expertise with a company's need and one is entirely different it's a, it's a child's needs in the family yeah. so uh, like adoption is the word you'd use for both but they're so entirely different processes as to be they probably use different different words entirely in, in, in different languages rather than just adoption right that's amazing and uh, while you're talking about babies and children and adoption I've got one last one for it's very quick. Newborn babies don't shiver. Newborn babies don't shiver. No. Why not? I think we should show them a picture of a bug carrying 20 dead ants <laughs> and see what, how do you like that there? <laughs> Due to their high surface area to volume ratio, infants tend to lose more heat to the environment compared to adults, to us, right? But they don't have the skeletal muscle mass, essentially. To maintain body temperature, actually shiver. Yeah, yeah. To maintain body temperature through shivering thermogenesis, that's called a baby. Basically, is you know those kind of inflatable lads that you see on top of uh, <laughs> yeah. petrol stations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what a baby is, right? <laughs> uh, and humans, we we shiver and we contract the muscles quickly and and elongate them again, and that creates heat. So, um, evolutionists provided babies with more brown fat, brown adipose tissue. That converts chemically stored energy in the form of fatty acids and glucose into heat through non-shivering thermogenesis. Right. So we shiver, but they don't because they have more uh, brown fat than, than we do, particularly around their necks and their chests and their backs and their bums. Particularly, I would also say their ankles and their wrists, which until a child is about two are the cutest things in the world. Those huge little rolls of fats into their feet and hands are amazing. But that makes sense, though. Yeah, like they haven't got what it takes to shiver, so you got to wrap them in something. Yeah, and fat is what it is. Love you it. little Michelin man. Look at yeah. you, not shivering. <laughs> goo, 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 goo. Look at the ants. Look at the ants. Look them in the eye. Look them in the eye. Look them in their dead, empty eyes. <laughs> Look them in their eye sockets. <laughs> right, bring on Dara Ennis, I say. Yes, Dara Ennis is going to tell us about the animal that has, has been studied so much that it has led to six Nobel Prizes. That's in part two. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? Now we are joined by not just an entomologist or a neuroscientist, but also everybody's favourite chaser. It's Dara the Menace Ennis. Listen, Dara, um, before we get on to what I promised Dave, you revealing the animal that has led to six Nobel Prizes, <laughs> uh, we want to b- bestow a special special favour, a special honour on you, because you're the only person we've asked this, because you're always tweeting weird facts. What is your favorite fact that is not related to the science that we're going to talk about today? Well, my favorite fact is one that no one ever really believes is true. And that's right. the be- they're the best kind of fact. So yeah. Yeah. the guy who invented the submarine, the very first submarine, knew William Shakespeare personally. And they met <laughs> on several occasions. <laughs> what? No, I, yeah. I, I'm now in that camp if I don't believe this is true. <laughs> yeah, everybody thinks submarines are a new invention. Submarines were invented about 300 years before tanks were. Um, so the guy who invented it is called Cornelius Drebel and he was a Dutch guy and he was at the court of King James I at the same time that Shakespeare was writing plays for King James in the early 1600s. Oh my God, that is incredible. How in the name of all that's good and holy did someone look at the sea or a river and go, we should go under that before someone else looked at the land and said we should go over that? What sort of lunatic, mermaid-influenced <laughs> inventor did that? Well, uh, submarines are just fancy diving bells like if you put any mm. sort of container underwater it'll hold the air in it and somebody just put it together the fact that they did it so early is amazing but yeah that is amazing but they used submarines in, in warfare in the american civil war in the 1860s so dave i actually looked this up because i knew dara was going to mention this particular right, fact right and um apparently the, the, the king himself is the first monarch who went underwater and they put him in and he went up the no. the 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 thames and uh yeah you don't see that in the credits of eastenders do you little little (laughs) picture of the king that is fantastic that is why this man is on this show apart from his expertise right what is the animal that the study of which has led to six nobel prizes there well believe it or not it's the fruit fly (laughs) oh you know during the summertime when you've got a fruit bowl you've got some bananas and these little red-eyed guys are a couple of millimeters long hanging around your house those exact ones are one of the best studied organisms in the world. And why the fruit fly? Well, for lots of reasons, actually. Um, and like I work with them every single day. My real day job is, and people don't seem to realise that I actually still do the science gig. And I go <laughs> into our lab and I do experiments and I look after our fruit flies. But fruit flies have a lot of advantages. One of the main ones is that you can keep them in a lab. 
So, mm. you know, if you're going to have an organism that you're keeping in a lab, it's really easy to keep fruit flies. Like my lab is not that big. It's about 10 people working in it. And we've got thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of fruit flies that we keep really, really easy. <laughs> you know, now, Dara, all I'm picturing is you walking into your, opening the door, it's just a swarm of free fruit flies and a load of rotten bananas sitting on the table. Are they are they contained in some way? Yes, they are. Well, it's, it's not quite that manic. So they're kept in little tubes with sort of cotton flugs or polyurethane flugs in them. And we need to keep them separate from each other because one of the best things about fruit flies is you can control their genetics really easily. So they're really good for genetic experiments. And they've been used in genetics experiments for over 100 years. Um, wow. And they're they're brilliant. So if you want to do an experiment on mice, you have to plan it months in advance. But a, an egg of a fruit fly can become a grandparent in about two or three weeks. So, you know... <laughs> Now, Dara, I have to say, when I moved to Dublin first, that was the norm in some of the places I lived. <laughs> and can I add? Can I add to the imagery? If Dave imagines you surrounded by flies, I also imagine loads of frogs just lined up outside the window. It's <laughs> like it's Christmas. Uh, so, so they're easy to breed, uh, and a, a fruit fly can become a granddad in twenty days, and they they mutate quite frequently, don't they? Yeah, they do, but you can control those mutations really well. So they've got very sort of weird genetics. One of the things that is called balancers. So normally when you mutate anything, it's a bad thing. People, mutations cause problems. And some of them are beneficial, but most of them are bad. And a lot of the things we want to look at, the, the animal wouldn't do very well. And it would lose that genetics. It would use natural selection. It would get rid of that mutation because it's not good for it. But you can actually play around with the genetics of flies so they keep your mutations indefinite, which is really rare in, in any animal. And especially rare in any animal that's actually very complex. So one of the other great things about it is they're scarily similar to humans. I know they don't <laughs> look it, um, but about 60% of our DNA is the same as a fruit fly. And if you're looking 60%. at... 60%? Yeah, yeah, because... It's more than a bouncer, like. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, about 60%. So how our cells work compared to a fruit fly, they're remarkably the same when you go down to a cellular level, which is what we're looking at. And for diseases, it's about 75%. So about 75% of disease genes have the same or very similar one in flies. So they're a really good model for disease as well. So, so that includes Down syndrome, Alzheimer's, autism, diabetes, and cancers of pretty much all types. And our nervous systems work almost exactly the same way, which is really weird. But, you know, so if you want to study a, a brain of a mammal, it's really, really hard to do. In my lab, we study brains of fruit flies all the time, and they're so small, we can... We can use a microscope to look right through them. They can manipulate them. And for ethical reasons, it's an awful lot nicer working with small insects than it is with mammals. So it's got a huge amount of advantage. Yeah. And sorry, just Neil listed off those those conditions there. Like, does that mean then that you can use the fly's genetics to to study those conditions? Or do you have an autistic fly, a Down syndrome fly. I, I, like, I'm trying to understand what you're doing there. So you can use it to study the conditions because the fundamentals of how it works at like a cellular level and at a molecular level is the same. Okay. So the best example of this is there's a gene in humans that when it's mutated, you present with Parkinson's. So you can get, you start to tremor. And if you mutate the same gene in flies, their legs start to shake. No. But the best bit is if you give them the same drug that you give humans, they stop shaking. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's that similar. Now, it's a lot of things are different, but for some things, the, the pathways and the way that the, the genes interact and everything is almost exactly the same. So they're a really, really good way to study these things in, in great detail. And 
because so many people study them and so many people, we understand them so well, we can really make a lot of progress very, very quick. And you're studying at the moment, aren't you studying their brains and, and memory as well? So yeah. um, you described cells as a factory, right? Yeah. Let, talk us through uh, RNA. So I've seen videos where you descri describe a cell as a factory. There's lots of processes going on. The DNA is, is in the office, which is the nucleus. Yeah, so, so if you think cells, when we go to school, we get this, you know, the diagram of the cell and it looks like it's empty and it's mm. not. Cells are really, really, really busy. There's constantly things moving, changing, being made, being destroyed. It's much more like, you know, a music festival where you're pushing your way through the crowd. So lots and lots of things happening all of the time. And your DNA is there, but it's so huge. Your, your DNA is about, about a meter long in each of your cells. In each cell? Yeah. So if you stretch all of your DNA out, you can go across the, the whole solar system about <laughs> seven or eight times. There's that much DNA in your body. So, even DNA for Dave, which clearly has gone wrong at some point. Yeah, but it's still very long, even if it's, <laughs> okay. you know... If it's long and yeah, wrong. Items. That's what I've called yeah. many times, Dave. It's meant to be C-T-A-G. You've got extra letters and stuff in there, Dave. <laughs> so you've got this massive amount of information, but actually accessing that information is really difficult. So the way we describe it is it's like, it's like an instruction book on how to make a human, but it's thousands and thousands of pages long. And if you really want to, you know, do anything in the factory, you're not going to carry a book that's got thousands of pages so instead, what the cell does is it takes one thing, the one thing that it needs and make a copy of it. And that's called RNA. And RNA is what happens in the cell. So that gets moved out. That's the instructions to make proteins. You know, so we work on the RNA. We don't work on the DNA. We work on what gets copied, what gets sent out, what gets moved around. And in, in nerve cells, that's really important because they have to react very quickly. If you want to make a memory, you have to make it in seconds. It's a physical thing. You have to build a new synapse. You know that thing they say, all oh, the synapses are connected. Yeah. You have to make those connections. And if you don't do it in seconds or definitely minutes, it won't happen. So you can't wait for the DNA to be done. It has to be there and ready. And we look at how that's all controlled. This is kind of mind-blowing, Dave, because this is in, in Dara's um, videos that he does online. When your brain, as he said, when he, your brain makes a new memory, it physically makes a new connection. The cell grows, new synaptic connections are formed. So in this kind of factory analogy, of the, it's the factory wants to make an extension. Isn't that it, Darren? Yeah. And it stores the RNA locally rather than down, having to go back to the DNA, which is back in the office there, which is down the other end of the factory. And and that's what you're studying, essentially, how which RNA is stored locally when, when the uh, the office extension, shall we say, is going to be built. Yeah, so we, we're trying to understand which genes. So you've got lots of genes in your genome and in, in a fly, it's still even got I think, 13 or 14,000 genes. Mm. So we're trying to figure out which ones of those are involved when a memory is made. And the good thing about that is a lot of these processes in biology are, are kind of, they're backwards and forwards. So if you can understand how they're made, you get an idea of how they're, they're lost. So okay. we're not studying disease directly, but this is the kind of thing that can open up better understanding of how neurodegeneration happens. So, you know, Parkinson's, memory loss, Alzheimer's, that kind of thing. Because memory loss is very normal. If you didn't lose memories, you'd go mad. You know, it's really, if you remembered absolutely everything. So it's a natural, moving, changing thing, your brain. Connections are always firing on and off. And doing that in a fly brain is infinitely easier than trying to do it in human. And given that, as you said, they've given rise to six Nobel Prizes, they're studied around the world by maybe even millions of scientists, certainly thousands of scientists. So are they all looking at things like what you're looking at? Or are you looking at a very specific thing in the study of fruit flies and someone else is looking at something else completely in the study of fruit flies? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there's like in our lab space that we work in, there's two different fly labs. So 
the other lab, uh, Petros's lab, are looking at uh, immunity. So they're looking at, you know, gut bacteria, the immune system, which is, again, one of the Nobel Prizes in flies was about the innate immune system. We only really understand that because of that early work in flies. Wow. But people are studying everything from, you know, in neurology, they're doing circuits and how the brain works. They're doing uh, development. Um, how, how, how does an embryo know where a head is and where, t- where the, the tail or the feet end? How, how does that happen? Where does that pattern come from? So that was all first described in flies as well. So when, when you've got a single cell that's fertilized egg, how does it decide where the head goes? And that's all done by RNA location within within the done. And it was first described in flies. So when you're doing the memory, when you're looking at how uh, a fruit fly remembers something, talk me through that. I, I find that hard to even comprehend. How, how do you test a fruit fly's memory? So we use we actually use the muscle synapses as, as a model for this. So... We don't, you, you can test for all these memories and people have done this where they, they do things like um, they give them a smell. So some smell that's not related to food, but it's where the food is. And then they go back and see if they remember and they offer them choices and, and all this kind of stuff. It's all this weird, complex behavioral stuff. But in our lab, we're actually, we use the muscle synapses as a model because it's really easy to study them. You can open up the fly, uh, larva usually, and you've got a sheet of muscle with nerves on it and you can see where it connects. So you can see individual synapses you can look at. And if you stimulate them with electricity or chemicals, you can make them grow. So you can make synaptic growth happen. And we can look at that live under a microscope, looking at single molecules at a time. And that's a model for memory. The other thing that we can do is we can play around with their genetics and turn certain genes off and see how it affects their movement. And then when we open them up, we can count the number of synapses. So we can we can use that synaptic number and how they connect and how they grow and how they shrink as a model for memory. But yeah, you can definitely do uh, memory tests in flies. I know that sounds mad. <laughs> not not flashcards, but something far more important. No, no, it's, it's usually things, cues that uh, animals react very positively to. Okay. And that's usually food or food or mating are the two that they really yeah, go for. Yeah, yeah. I've seen this cow shite before. <laughs> just this, 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 cat, this fly looking at you. You said that, you know, it's well over 100 years. Six Nobel Prizes, Dave, right? The, the love affair kind of started with this US biologist called Thomas Morgan. Yeah. And he, isn't he the guy who figured out basically genes are on chromosomes, like beads on string? He's the one who kind of proved it, yeah. So up until this point, they weren't really sure how chromosomes worked. But he was the one that showed not only that genes were on chromosomes, they had an idea about that, but they were on specific ones. So certain genes are on certain chromosomes. And we know mm. this now, it's fact. So... Mm. In humans, we've got 23 pairs, but in flies, they've only got four. And the fourth one is actually so small that we generally don't talk about it. Right. And, but he figured it out because he realized that wide-eyed mutants, so flies have, have red eyes, that's the standard one, but occasionally you get a white eye. This is a really recessive gene, and it doesn't happen very often. But he noticed that the ones that did have it were almost exclusively male. It was really rare for females. And through a series of sort of clever experiments, he was able to show that it's linked to the X chromosome, which is the sex chromosome. So if you're a male, you get an, an X and a Y. That's what makes you male. But females mm-hmm. have two Xs. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yep. when you have a female, if they've got one red eye and one white eye gene on their two Xs, they just have red eyes because red is dominant. It's like brown eyes and blue eyes in humans. But the males, because it's on the sex gene, if they get one copy of the white, because they don't have another X, they immediately get white eyes. So males were massively more likely to. And he showed that that was sex linked and it was linked to what chromosomes. So it's the same with hemophilia in humans. Men are way more likely. To. 
Okay. Um, I'm remembering now as a child getting a biology, you know, microscope set as a Christmas present. And it did nothing for me there. I ended up on the radio instead of actually having a science career. Um, but in it were like those little glass, um, I can't remember any of the terminology. Right. Slides, there you go, uh, that you would put in. Sorry, you, you, you forgot the word slide. Yeah, I mean, okay, <laughs> again, go, like I said, not a scientist. <laughs> go and ask the neuroscientist a question. I can't wait for this. <laughs> so I looked in. I looked into the tiny telescope at the, sli- at the slide. <laughs> at the glass thing. I'll think you'll find it's called, Neil. <laughs> at the glass thing. And on the glass thing, you, you could make your own slides. Yeah. I, never, I don't think I ever really got to that, but there were three prepared ones. Two of them were... I don't know, some kind of cross-section of a plant, maybe a stem or something like that. And one of them, now that I'm thinking about it, was a fruit fly. I mean, I, I don't actually remember anything other than that. <laughs> Sorry. There's a handful of, like, model organisms that are really widely studied mm. around the world. One is a worm, so nematode worm, microscopic, but it was the first animal to get its genome sequence. And I used to work on nematodes, actually, before when I was doing my PhD. Right. And fruit flies is another one. Um, there's a little plant called Arabidopsis. So they're these, they're called the model organisms. And they're so, they, the scientific community basically settled on these and went, do you know what? We're going to, everybody's going to try and work on the same thing. That way we can build up resources. We can compare results when we, when we do things, we can work together or we can, you know, go, that isn't right. Or this yeah. is right. And fruit flies is one of them. So they're everywhere. I was reading about Cambridge and so they're studying, you know, various studies going on but only two of the studies are actually about the fruit fly the poor old fruit fly is being used so we can extrapolate from the him or her you know applications for us no one gives a shit about the fruit fly it's terrible <laughs> well, you do get ecologists and stuff because fruit flies are pests as well you know so they get in they eat fruit and they they get into like um and they carry vector diseases of fruit trees and stuff so people study them from that point of view but 99 percent of the study is trying to figure out genetics rather than what the fruit flies actually well, Neil mentioned that what what kind of things I mean you've you've mentioned for example neurodegenerative disease study uh, other conditions like what are the things that we hope to be able to benefit from as human beings from our study of fruit flies what kind of areas well if we go through what the the, the sort of the prizes the Nobel Prize mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. A good idea so we've already talked about Thomas Hunt Morgan so that was genetics and chromosomes which was a major part of like scientific discovery that made that opened up tons of other avenues right and um, another one was um muller i can't remember muller's first name but muller in in the 40s got one for how x-rays can mutate genes so oh. this is this is a double sided thing one is that you can do it on purpose if you want to mutate genes uh, but the other one is that lots of x-ray exposure is not very good for you and gives you cancer so you know a very good thing um after that, there was, oh, the embryo development, the stuff that I said. So yeah. when an embryo is done. So they figured out really quickly which genes are con- in control of causing head ends and tail ends and stomach and how it how it's all controlled. And that's generally applicable across sort of to all the way to humans. Not the same kind of thing, but good, basic ideas. And that's really important for studying developmental disorders and, and all sorts of stuff. So it has a huge impact. There was also the innate immunity. So our, our understanding of how the innate immune system. So this is, you know, like when you get vaccinated, your system adapts and it learns. Yeah. That's that's the adaptive immune system. The other one is the one that just blanket works. The right. one that causes allergic reactions and things like that. Our understanding of that was heavily influenced by flies. How the sense of smell works was another one. Uh, that was Richard Axel. I know that sounds weird, but flies are really, because they find their food by smell, 
they're really responsive and really easy to ah. model with smells. So that right. was why I said the smell thing for learning. That was one of the, the experiments they did for that. That was Richard Axel, which wasn't that long ago, actually. I think that was like 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, 2004. I'm looking at the list here to see, to see can he do all six and he's done. Well, he's... The, the last one was really recently and that's easy. That's um, circadian rhythm. So how we understand how sleep works. So that he's got them all, is he? he? Of course he's got them all. He's <laughs> the, the menace and of course he's got them all. I don't know everything, but I literally work on this every day. And I'm also, or my boss is head of the uh, public engagement research in our department. So I do a thing where I go to schools and I talk about this a lot. Okay. So Still. I've, I've done this a lot of times. So I can't remember all the names. One of, one of them was an English guy. And yeah, it was all about circadian rhythm. So how we understand how sleep works. Is, is largely down to early work on flies. It's, it's a big part of it. Jeffrey C. Hall, Michael Rosbash, and um, Michael W. Young won oh, that prize. there we go. Yeah, yeah right. just let everyone know Neil's reading that as opposed oh, no, to Gara, who yeah. knows it all off my heart. <laughs> also, I, I, I have a feeling that there's a huge Jeff Goldblum sort of fly just outside his shot, and he just has a gun towards Dara's head going, big us up, motherfucker, big us up. Uh, uh, how do they sleep? Um, they sleep in in sort of short bursts, but they're a diurnal, so they're awake during the day. So these aren't these aren't nocturnal flies. They they're awake during the day and at night time. So in our rooms that we keep them in, we've controlled temperature and light rooms. The lights go off for eight hours at night, so they can sleep. So they have to go for a nap. Um, but they don't sleep for very very long periods. They sleep for short periods and then wake up. So when they're testing them for sleep, they have these really cool that sorry, I'm I'm very nerdy. Really no, cool um, experimental setups where it's these really thin glass tubes with a laser going across them and the flies keep moving all the time. They're always bouncing around. But then when they go to sleep for a period, they don't break the laser and that's how they know they're asleep. So this was how they registered and measured different sleep patterns and everything. It was really clever. That's genius. You know that film with Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones? Yes, yeah. Entrapment. That's how they knew Sean Connery had fallen asleep. When he didn't try and go through the lasers in the museum. <laughs> he was older at that point. By the way, the, the point to apologise for being nerdy was not 25 minutes into this conversation <laughs> about fruit flies. It was very much at the start when I introduced you as an entomologist. Yes, absolutely. Um, what are you doing with maple syrup plantations? Oh, yeah, my time in Canada. That was fun. So, um... Yeah, I, I worked in Canada for three years. I was in Montreal and I worked in a lab there where we worked on forestry pests. So uh, one of them was called the, the forest tent caterpillar. And what it is, and is a little caterpillar of a butterfly. It's fairly everywhere in Canada and North America and it eats aspen and maple leaves. So okay. normally not a problem, but about once every 10 years, there's outbreaks that are unbelievable. Like when you walk into a forest during an outbreak, you can hear the caterpillars eating. What? And oh, you can God. you can hear their poo hitting the ground. It's like gentle rain because <laughs> oh there's just God. so many of them. So they go from one or two-ish on average per tree to thousands and thousands and thousands of them on every tree. They just, they destroy the leaves and it really affects the, the crop. Uh, what causes that balloon then every 10 years or so? That was what we were trying to figure okay. out. So, so the thing is, it isn't national, it's local. So it happens in like a radius of, you know, a few like shows across and... <laughs> Neil, that is one of the most niche references I think anyone has ever made on any podcast. If you were to live in the 80s and didn't hear Shaw's almost nationwide. 90s. No, no, not 90s. 90s. No way it was 90s. Shaw's was almost nationwide. Sorry, I'm, I'm not culture enough for that. I didn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, okay, let me explain the reference. Don't worry, we're getting back. We're getting back to, we're getting back to the maple <laughs> syrup plantations. There was an ad on Irish television which speaks to Ireland 
Everton's lack of ambition in some ways. It was Shaw's almost nationwide. That's what I was referring to. Sorry, Dara, please continue. I know, yeah. So these outbreaks would be maybe a couple of kilometers across or, or less. And like down the road, there wouldn't be one. But then wow. two or three years later, it would happen down the road. Okay, so it's, right. It's not a big, wide climate thing that causes it. It's local situations. So we were trying to figure out what those triggers were. Because if we could remove the triggers and stop the massive outbreaks, they wouldn't be a problem. Because in the background, they cause, you know, negligible damage. Right. So that was what we were trying to figure out. Well, yeah, maybe I was out in maple syrup plantations. It was really good fun. Did you figure out what it was then? We We had a few ideas, but like, you might be surprised to hear this, but, you know, the ecology lab in Montreal that's trying to figure this stuff out is not very well funded. So um, <laughs> we bought most of our stuff in the dollar store. We made our own thing. So we have a couple of papers. We have a few ideas about different different ideas about, you know, predator movements and behavior right. and cycles in the trees themselves and all that kind of stuff. But we, we never, we only scratch the surface. You should have said that this book, French to Caterpillars, you get an awful lot more money in Quebec. <laughs> an awful lot more money. Uh, can I just say, Dave, when when I was caught in the forest in Montreal, um, I wasn't dogging. I was taking part <laughs> in a very... You were a caterpillaring. Oh, yeah. Forest pests. Dara <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Ennis, uh, not only is he a star on television, but he's an absolute star to talk to us about... The humble fruit fly, Dave, which has led to, as I promised, six Nobel Prizes. And forget about everything else, all the other scientific breakthroughs that didn't uh, result in a prize. Dar, you're an absolute legend. Cheers. Thanks very much for having me on, lads. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Well, Dave, my friend, my quizzer, my, and now, educator, Dar Ennis. I was not expecting the fruit fly. You know, when we talked about the animal whose study has given us the most Nobel Prizes, I don't know why, just the lowly fruit fly was not the type of creature I predicted. You were going to go rats, weren't you? I was, lab rats or lab rats probably or monkeys chimps. or something. Yeah, yeah, I thought like chimps might be the one, but no, yeah, here we are, fruit flies. And he's so good, he, he, like he's such a good science communicator, like he was able to rattle off every single uh, prize pretty much, so. Yeah. Uh, and that's why they pay him the big bucks, and that's why you can see him on television pretty much uh, yeah. every day. The chase is on forever and ever and ever. Uh, okay, well look, next week I am I'm going to bring something that is dear to my heart to you, Neil. Okay. And I'm going to tell you that scientifically proven on a number of occasions, mm. without any doubt, mm. people who listen to death metal yes. are intrinsically happier than people who do not. What? Yeah. And it's not some kind of like, I haven't gone and gotten some you know, the lead singer of a metal band to come in and tell us this, that he, <laughs> yeah, he, he yeah. thinks his crowds are happy. No, this is a professor who's been a professor for decades, one of the most qualified people we'll ever talk to. And he has proven on a number of occasions that listening to death metal makes you happier. Color me skeptical. Right. But well, I, I remain unconvinced, but you've convinced me before. So I'm here. Join us next week and find out and uh, your mind will be blown. <laughs> <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.